Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's a statistic in Irish history that's hard to get your head around no matter how many times you hear it. Even though I've spent years researching the Great Famine, I still double-take when I come across the levels of migration from Ireland. Between 1845 and 1855, just 10 years, over 2 million people emigrated from Ireland to escape the Great Hunger. That number constituted in or around one quarter of the entire population of the island at the time and doesn't factor in the over 1 million people who died from starvation and disease back in Ireland. While these statistics can help us comprehend the scale of the catastrophe that was the Great Famine, they can also obscure what it was actually like for the people who lived through these times. This is particularly the case with famine emigrants. Their experience is often summarised by the term coffin ships, While it might adequately evoke the hardship they endured, it doesn't help us understand though what it was actually like to leave Ireland and emigrate to the US in particular. For example, the overwhelming majority of famine emigrants did survive. The size and scale of the Irish-American community today is a testimony to this, but the term coffin ship implies only death. Now in 2021, Dr. Keen T. McMahon published a book The Coffin Ship, Life and Death During the Great Famine. Keane's book is something of a fresh take on the story of famine emigration. Having spent years in archives on both sides of the Atlantic, where he sieved through countless letters, accounts, diaries and records, he has put together an incredible human-centred approach to the story of coffin ships. Now when I say human-centred, I mean the individual takes centre stage, giving a full and often complex story of what it was like to go through emigration during the Great Hunger. Over this episode and the next one, Keane and myself discussed who exactly the people who left Ireland were, why they left, what it was like on board coffin ships, and how they helped each other along the way. I think you'll find this deepens and maybe even changes your perception of what our ancestors went through back in the 1840s. It certainly changed mine. Before we dive in, I'll introduce myself. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is the Irish History Podcast. If you haven't subscribed, don't forget to do so. This is a two-parter, so you don't want to miss out part two, which is out next week. This is the first episode of 2023, and I'm planning what's going to be a busy year for the show over the coming 12 months. 
I have a series on medieval history and also one on modern history lined up. You'll hear more about them in the coming weeks. Next week, my exclusive series on the Civil War starts over on Patreon and Acast+. Plus. Now, a sincere apology to the supporters for the various delays involved in production on that series. I can assure you it's worth the wait. The series is basically an expert guide to the Civil War. Last autumn, I sat down with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin and over five sessions, we teased out the story of the Civil War. If you think you know the Civil War, Brian has a really fresh perspective on the conflict. It's not just his encyclopedic knowledge that's great, but he also challenges some decades-old misconceptions about one of the formative wars in modern Irish history. The first episode, as I say, will drop next week and it's going to be exclusively available for supporters of the show on Patreon and Acast+. There's links below if you're not already a member. Now to introduce Keen. Keen is himself an Irish emigrant to the US, where he's an associate professor in the Department of History in the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, Ireland, being a pretty small place, it turned out that Keen and myself have relations in common, so a shout out to all the gang in Tulla before we begin. Also, if you want to get Keen's book, I have links to it in the show notes below. His interview speaks for itself. It's well worth getting. It's a really enjoyable read. Finally, sound on today's show is from Kate Dunley. But to start the story of coffin ships, I'm not going to go into the broader history of the Great Famine in this episode. I've linked to my series in the show notes if you want to find out more, but it suffices to say that given the horrific conditions in Ireland from 1846 in particular, people became increasingly desperate to escape and emigration from Ireland developed into the proportions mentioned at the start of the show. To begin our conversation then, I asked Keane who exactly these people were and if it was possible to identify a stereotypical famine emigrant. I would say that it's impossible to identify the standard emigrant during the famine because there was such a broad swath of the population represented. As you know, the population in Ireland, best estimates we have was about 8.5 million. And then over the next 10 years, 2.2 million rough estimates 2.2 million left and i should say that i that i use that that time period a 10 year period of 1845 to 1855 because if you look at the bell curve of annual departures it doesn't actually return to pre-famine levels of less than 70,000 until 1855 so we have 2.2 million people leaving and it covers such a broad swath that it's impossible to identify a standard emigrant. Keane then went on to tease apart famine emigrants into different groups, with their different reasons for leaving. Obviously, the Great Famine created what were the intolerable conditions at home. But as you're going to hear now, migrants came from all walks of life and many had very different reasons for leaving Ireland. There were lots of reasons why different members or different, say, cohorts of the community would leave. Those who have very little money but have enough to, say, sell their tools, their interest in their farm, maybe get a little bit of help from friends and family and just have enough to get going. They obviously have have a stake in the bargain um, because because their their standard of living is is collapsing. 
But you know, those who have uh, who are a little better off in society also have have a reason to leave. So the poor rates, which are as you know, like a tax on property uh, on on tenants, those rates mean that people who have some capital in society might actually be better off leaving and fleeing, even though they're not actually in danger of dying themselves. They might, in the picture, in the broader picture. Uh, of the collapsing economy leave. Those who are at the bottom of the scale, paupers in workhouses, uh, really don't have a choice. Looking at the next two to three years of their lives, they're either going to die, remain in the workhouse, or possibly emigrate. And so there's the uh, opportunity for them. And then I said as well that there are people for whom relationships outside of Ireland are providing them with with the opportunity. So wherever you are in the economic scale, if you have family in, say, Pennsylvania, who are willing to pay for your ticket, you might see that as an opportunity to go. the The truth is, is as 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 you know yourself, is that the very poorest of the poor did not emigrate, and they were the ones who died in disproportionate numbers. And we would also say that it's it. We will never know how many of the 1.1 million who died, we'll never actually know how many of them were planning on emigrating. You know, when bodies are found on the side of the road, it's not known, were they emigrating to the next town or were they trying to make it to, to Liverpool? We'll never know. Sometimes those who couldn't afford to leave did whatever they had to to get out of the country. During our interview, Keane detailed how some people would commit crimes in the hope that they would get transported to the penal colonies in Australia. The next story talks about one such person. It gives a good sense of what Keane's book is like as well. It's full of accounts like this one. This woman was transported and she was sentenced to being transported. And as soon as that happened, her daughters, who were teenagers, ran out, stole shirts and then turned themselves in. In the, in the hopes that they would be, you know, if they're sending batches of, of prisoners from a court session, that they would be sent in the batch with mum. Mum got seven years transportation, but the daughters only got 12 months imprisonment. And so, for, I mean, while in prison, they petitioned the Lord Lieutenant up in Dublin Castle, who was the apex, the acme of executive power in, in Dublin. And uh, they ask if, uh, they tell him. Hey, listen, we did this in the hopes of getting transported. Can you transport us instead? And he actually commuted their sentence and sent them as assisted immigrants on the same ship as mum. Most people, however, were bound for North America, having bought their own tickets or were helped by friends and family members. Once someone secured passage, the prospect of the voyage was daunting. While many had never seen the sea before, some, as Keane now explains, would not even have known where their port of departure was. They also had no idea of the risks and dangers they faced. Now, they couldn't read reviews on TripAdvisor to help prepare themselves, but there was a 19th century equivalent, as Keane now details, and that was friends and family who had already left providing invaluable knowledge. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The vast majority of the population uh, lives in rural situation and their access to transportation, their reasons for going more than you know, 20 miles from home uh, are few and far between. And so for, yes, again, someone living in Tulla in East Clare might know how to get into Ennis, but to ask them to keep going uh, all the way to Limerick and um, their, their minds are going to be shocked. And so the, the communication with friends and family who've done it before is really, is really, really important. Uh, a source that I use are prepaid tickets that were bought in. I use a specific collection from the Cope family papers. The Cope family were Quakers who ran a packet ship system running between Liverpool and Philadelphia. And if someone bought a ticket for you, they could write on the back of the ticket some instructions. And 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 surprise, the reason I use the Cope family is because they they survived. There there's thousands of these tickets in Philadelphia. And so the instructions on the back would often be very basic, down-to-earth kind of instructions, not only on, on how to get somewhere, but more importantly on who to trust. Who to trust when you get to a place like Ennis or Limerick? Who to connect with? Are there family? Are there friends? Oftentimes, shipping agents who are the people who kind of sell you the ticket, point out the ship that you to go to. Yeah, those folks, emigrants are being encouraged to go back to the same one because they did right by them, you know. So ask when you get in there, ask so-and-so at such and such a brokerage, they'll help you out. And by the way, as one of the letters uh, in the book says, by the way, tell, tell them thanks, by the way, like like say, tell them that we got along grand and we're, you know, there's no way that someone living in Pennsylvania is ever going to see the shipping broker again. But they wanted their cousin, their friend, their sister, to let them know that I made it, you know, let them know thanks, you know. And it's in those ways that those personal relationships are being stitched all the way along from when the morning when you leave Tulla till the day that you land in Philadelphia and you meet your your cousin or your friend or your brother those little relationships are being are being stitched all the way. Newspapers were also essential because shipping companies often provided detailed adverts which would help people. I should also say that that people are relying on newspapers for information. Literacy rates in Ireland at the time are hovering around 50% with complications by age, etc. But people are often reading the newspaper to each other or are going and listening to the newspaper being read out loud. So the information that's in newspapers, even though one might not personally be able to read it word for word, they know somebody who can. And so the newspapers, that's why you see those shipping ads. We look at them nowadays and, you know, it kind of looks, you know, uninteresting. I mean, there's just so much information jammed into these tiny, tiny text. 
And, you know, you're kind of like, just give me the big picture. But the point was that that they wanted, they they knew that their ads were a form, a way to, to communicate information. Once they successfully reached the port of departure, be it Liverpool in England, or any of a number of ports in Ireland, prospective emigrants obviously boarded the vessel that would carry them overseas. The key to understanding their experiences on board is how ships in the 19th century were built. They were not designed for a single purpose. As Keane now explains, it was a very common practice to refit vessels depending on what they would be carrying. Ships at this time are not purpose-built for emigration. The sailing ships at this time are designed to be multifunctional vehicles that can be used for different purposes. And so it's true that many ships were lumber freighters that were repurposed for emigration. So so we think like, ah, yeah, nowadays that's like putting somebody in the back of an articulated lorry, you know. And in some ways, yeah, that's true. But it's also fair to say that that so many ships at the time were designed to be like they had onboard carpenters and every port had additional carpenters who would essentially say to the captain, okay, what do you need? Because there's a big difference between transporting massive bales of cotton, right? Which is what a lot of these ships are doing. They're bringing cotton from places like New Orleans over to Liverpool. And so ships are, ships are kind of complicated places that need to be rebuilt. The living conditions they faced for what was often a six-week voyage between Ireland and North America were basic, to put it mildly. In the next part of our interview, Keane explains what living conditions were like by starting with letters home from emigrants who had already completed the voyage, warning their friends and relatives what they could expect. Indeed, throughout his book, The Coffin Ship, Keane explains how this transatlantic Irish community spanning the Atlantic with letters backwards and forwards was emerging during the Great Hunger as people helped each other despite the considerable distances between them. Again, it's something that, that people wrote about in their letters home when, like, be prepared for this. Uh, and there's many dimensions of it. And, and chapter three called Life looks at life at sea. When it comes to emigrants, emigrants are, are basically housed in a very long wooden room that has shelves running along the sides of it. Usually, obviously, at least one set of shelves, sometimes two. And these long wooden rooms are the, the place where emigrants spend the majority of their time on the five to six weeks that they're sailing from, say, Ireland or Liverpool to Canada or the United States. And so they're very densely packed. The, the, the shelves are, are, are partitioned, if you will, uh, into six by six boxes. And in each of these boxes are eight by eight. And in each of these boxes, there's anywhere from three to four people. So you can imagine if you're if you're traveling by yourself, you're you're more or less guaranteed you're going to be sharing a sleeping space with, you know, like a total stranger. And like maybe they're seasick, maybe they, you know, are barely clothed. Um, maybe they are kind and have food they can share. Maybe they're grumpy, maybe they're mentally ill. I mean, so the so the first thing to say is like the close proximity of people is not with, with strangers is not something that that a lot of Irish people coming from rural situations in which they're sharing a cabin with family 
would be accustomed. So that that's the physicality. And you have two kinds of luggage when you're an immigrant in these days. You have, if you have luggage, of course, there's a lot of people, right, who are, who are, who are living on a shoestring budget. But if you have luggage, you'll have the hold, which is underneath the steerage, which is the very, very bottom of the ship. It's a cold, dark, dank, low ceilinged area where they keep, you know, commodities, the the merchandise, cargo, stuff you don't need on a day-to-day level basis. And if you have a chest, you'll keep that in there, stuff that you're bringing to America. The stuff that you need on a day-to-day basis. So maybe you brought some salted herrings. Maybe you brought some, I mean, if people can get their hands on vegetables, turnips, for example, extra clothing, those are kept in a sack or in a smaller box and kept with you in steerage, slid under your your sleeping shelf. And so people are living in there. That That is their main living arrangements. Now, it's in the interests of everybody that immigrants spend as much time on deck as possible because for a couple of reasons. First of all, to air out the apartment, like you can leave the hatches open. Second of all, to air out the people, like to give them space to to move around. But also because seasickness is rooted in motion, is a form of motion sickness, which is a connection between our eyes and the and the balance receptors in our ears. And so if there's a disconnect between what our eyes see, like if you're in a wooden room and nothing's moving, but your ears sense the ship's going up and down, there's a disconnect between those two. It causes seasickness. So a lot of times you see in letters to prospective immigrants, the advice, spend as much time as you can on the deck. If the captain says it's okay, go just go up there. I, just spend time up there because then your eyes are going to see that the that the water level is moving, that the ship is moving, and it's going to help. It's also, of course, more healthy. Keen next touched on something I found fascinating. The stereotype of the coffin ship is an unseaworthy vessel. But perhaps a greater risk nearly all passengers feared was how they would be treated by the captain and crew. Once the vessel left the port of departure, there was no recourse to a higher authority than the ship's captain. The passengers were at the mercy of this individual, and some ships could be brutal regimes. There's close to no limits on on what a captain can do. Uh, The captain himself clothed and bordering on uh, militaristic monopoly over violence. And, and that is rooted in rules of Oleron going back to the 12th or 13th century, uh, in which they realized that, you know, a ship out at sea could descend into mayhem if we don't empower one man to employ violence uh, and and going back to the work of of for folks like uh, Marcus Redeker and Nicholas Frickman and others, sailors were generally drawn from the working classes, and so they were looked down upon by their captains. So captains maintained control over their over their sailors if they felt like it. Uh, some captains um, don't aren't really that invested in the social conditions on the ship. Uh, and I have lots of examples of people saying that, you know, the captain let the sailors run amok. Uh, other captains are, I mean, generally seem to be what I would hope to have if I was on the ship. I mean, generally interested, 
in the emigrants' health, genuinely interested in protecting their safety. And so 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 it's a mixed bag. So so there's no rule. It depends on on the captain itself, which you know, we, we we look now on on 19th century institutions like the church, uh, like the navy, and we can see the the opportunities for abuse uh, just rife, you know, um, and also opportunities for 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 good to be done. In the face of these threats and risks from the captain and crew, solidarity between the passengers was crucial. Keane now explains how bonds of solidarity often stretched back long before the passengers had even reached their port of departure. Well, I said that in the first chapters, there's connections and solidarities and and uh, between people developing as they're gathering the resources to leave. And then those solidarities and communities are stitched again when they're actually making their way to the port. It continues through the experience of life at sea. At every step of the journey, Irish people realized that they were going to have to start making relationships with other people if they were going to survive or, you know, manage this this experience. This happened at the earliest levels of the journey. So I have, for example, letters in which people literally say, here's a prepaid ticket, you're going to be leaving on such and such a ship. Listen, do you know the weaver down on the square? His daughter is leaving, and I think she's leaving on the same ship as you. You should go down there, and you should introduce yourself before you leave, and the two of you can be pals on the ship. This, of course, is important because you know women are, are subjected to sexual violence uh, on the ship, and so solidarity is important there. But even before leaving friends start to connect. Emigrant guides made a big sense, made a big thing of this. If you can leave with your neighbors, what if you get five or six families together who want to leave together? It would be helpful when you're on the ship if you have neighbors and friendly faces. People who are evicted. There are groups of people who are sent wholesale evicted. There's not massive numbers of them, but from the Crown Estates, uh, they are sent off in huge batches of 20 to 30 to 50 people at a time. They are sent together. The women, uh, the Earl Grey orphans, uh, who are women who are sent from workhouses out to Australia. Yeah, of course, they're, these people are evicted or they're leaving workhouses. They're, they're, they're at the bottom of the social pyramid. But they're also leaving together. And so those kinds of friendships and solidarities would be carried onto the ship. In some cases of maltreatment by the captain, some emigrants did seek redress when they reached land. On the other side of the ocean, you, you, could, you could take a captain to court for abuse. But as, as the parliamentary papers, uh, the evidence given in the parliamentary papers makes clear, you need people who, who are going to stick around to give evidence. You know what I mean? You need people who are going to address a court in some meaningful, intelligent way. And you also, so one of the big problems is, is in the court. Now, actually, one of, the, one of the liveliest court kind of positions or places where, where court was used was in Liverpool. I started going through the, you know, the Liverpool Mercury had, had columns, police news, sometimes they call it court news. You know, you just kind of read through of all the like incredible things that would show up in a in a court uh, in a day court uh, in uh, in Liverpool. 
in the 1840s and 50s. But there's like a lot of emigrants taking taking captains to court uh, for fraud and for violence before leaving. And in that way, the British government uh, helped because the emigration agent whose responsibility was to make sure, okay, is that ship okay? Is it big enough to carry that many people? Is the, Does it have a big enough crew? Is it carrying the wrong cargo? Or, the you know, is there enough headspace under steerage? Like that person was also empowered to represent emigrants in court as a lawyer, like a free lawyer. And if you go through, spend some time in Liverpool Mercury, and I did, and I use it in my book, uh, you'll see that they, um, that they do so effectively. One of my favourite stories that Keane shared was this one about how emigrants often used a name and shame strategy to highlight the actions of captains who had maltreated them. Passengers could gang up together and pay for the insertion of a resolution, basically like take out an ad, an ad in the newspaper, uh, to commend or condemn a captain only for his behavior. And then they would those those resolutions would often be reprinted, clipped and reprinted in Irish newspapers. So that was a way in which you could publicize the maltreatment uh, of a captain uh, in the popular press. Uh, and that's another way that that um, that emigrants could could find some redress. But day to day out in the ocean, no, you're completely at the mercy of the captain. While we've so far covered what the experiences were like on board, the term coffin ship was not adopted without good reason. In part two, Keane will be talking about the levels of mortality Irish emigrants have faced during the transatlantic voyages and how they survived in the very strange surroundings of North American cities when they reached the US in particular. His answers here were fascinating. Now that episode is coming out next week. If you haven't already, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and make sure you get that when it drops. There's also links to Keen's book in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.